0: last week that, that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses was on a level categorically different than other prophets ok that's a brief summary of what we said last week right not just higher but categorically different other prophets when the Rambam delineates a number of differences where other prophets could not Moshe Rabbeinu was able to speak to Hashem at will not only when he was so to speak visited by prophecy he was he remained vertical he was not knocked out of his senses as it were, like other prophets were a number of differences which which culminated in his separating from his wife, I'm sure with her permission, because of his level, whereas other prophets didn't have to do that. He was categorically different and I think the clearest probably probably clearest indication of that is if you look in the thirteen principles, the thirteen articles of faith that the Rambam delineates, there are two separate principles and I read them out last week. The sixth of them is that All the words of the Prophets are true. In fact, in the the expression that we say, Animamin, that uh, sort of creedal statement that is known as the 13 13 Ikrim, the 13 fundamentals, is, Animamin ben I believe with a perfect face, Shekol divrei nevi'im emes. Shekol divrei nevi'im emes. That all the words of the Prophets are true. Right? That's what it says. And perplexingly difficult to understand, the seventh one says... That, An Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu, that the that the prophecy of Moses Amitis was true. You just said that all the words of all the prophets are true. You surely didn't mean to exclude him. Surely he's if anyone's included in the words of the prophets, he certainly are. And yet you say separately that you believe that he was he was true and then Haya Av. L'Navim, he was the father of the prophets. La min L'Fana, those who came before him. those who come after him. Before him and after him in a sort of um, conceptually, not chronologically. But he was the father of all the prophets. And therefore the problem we posed last week and struggled to answer was, why do you need two separate principles? If there are 13 fundamentals, 13 articles of faith, why on earth do you have to split one? which is surely that prophecy received from above, is true from beginning to end. From the beginning of the book of Genesis to the end of Tanakh, of Scripture, why do you have to separate those into Moses, Moshe Ben's prophecy, and prophecy of the other prophets? And as i try tried to explain, it's not just, it's absolutely fundamental to understand that he was categorically different, and to the extent that if you believe that he was a prophet, absolutely taking dictation from Hashem, just like all the other prophets, if you believe that, but don't believe that he was categorically different, you're missing a fundamental of Jewish faith. Huh? You're missing a fundamental, and any of those fundamentals, if you're missing, means no spiritual life. No, it couldn't be more serious. So he was categorically different. And last week we tried to approach, to approach the subject one of the most beautiful expressions of it, as I tried to explain, is that which is brought down by the, <coughs> by the son of the Rambam, <coughs> who says that <coughs> the prophecy of Moshe was different in the sense that unlike other prophets when he stood next to Aaron you remember the discussion? when he stood next to his brother Aaron and Hashem told him you go and give the message to Pharaoh and Moshe said I can't speak properly and Hashem told him to speak to his brother and he would speak it out so Moshe objected by saying that's not allowed a prophet has to say his own prophecy right? I'm revising a very brief overview last week's discussion right, as a beginning for tonight He said that, Why do you tell me to take my prophecy and say it to my brother? There is a law that a a prophet has to say his own prophecy. He can't give it to someone else to speak out. He may not ignore it. He has to say it. And he must say it personally. So why are Hashem you telling me, Tell my brother Aaron and he will be my mouthpiece and say it out? That's not allowed. A prophet must speak his own prophecy. And Hashem told him the stupendous, Absolutely stupendous, As we say, novel idea. Hashem said, you're making a mistake, you're not a prophet who will be saying his words to your brother. You will be the prophecy and your brother will be the prophet. You will not be at the level of a prophet saying prophecy which will sound like words to your brother who will repeat them as a spokesman. You will be at the level of the message. He will be the prophet receiving prophecy. You namely will be the prophecy. Right? You're not at the level of the, of the medium, you're at the level of the message stupendous idea which means that he is not invested Moshe Bane so to speak does not invest a vessel <coughs> which transmits his message he is the message there is no vessel there is no style when you read the rest of Tanakh you, you hear the style the personality of a prophet comes through even though it's dictation but it's clothed what we call Mitlabesh it is a Kabbalistic term meaning to, to invest something like the clothing covers the body like the body is invested in the clothing Hence the word vest in, in It means to be clothed. And uh, that's what Islam shus means. He, as it were, other prophets are mitlab. That means their, their message is clothed or dressed in the medium of their own personality, their own lens, their own refraction, as it were. But Moshe Rabbeinu says no refraction at all. He and the message are one. When you read Chumash, you're not, there's no personality coming through. It's completely clarified. There is no personality. Another way it's put in the Kabbalistic sources is that he... And, of course, last week we tried to discuss why it's fundamental, but this evening let's focus more on the nature of that fundamental difference. It's put in the Kabbalistic sources that other prophets see through a lens which is clouded somewhat, whilst what's known in the in the, in the Kabbalistic t- terminology, a lens that does not shine entirely. And his lens is called Aspl- Aspaklaria hamaira. Aspaklaria is in Aramaic, or perhaps comes from a Greek origin, which means a sort of a lens or a a mirror perhaps or a lens we would call it which is means it's completely light he sees through a lens Moshe Rabbeinu sees the divine level that that shines down he sees it through a lens that is completely unrefracting there's no distortion or, or, or refraction of the light at all it's exactly what the light is other prophets no one else on earth ever and no one ever will see through a light a lens that is that clear even the Mashiach the Rambam writes very clearly that the Messiah himself will be on a lower level of prophecy than Moshe Rabbeinu he will be greater in wisdom than King Solomon who is the wisest human being who ever lived who approached everything in the Torah except one thing that Moshe understood that he didn't he will be greater in wisdom than King Solomon but less in prophecy than Moshe the Mashiach and the Mashiach is is everything he is cosmic He he is the world's wisdom he is the totality of the spirituality in the world Mashiach in Hebrew adds up to the same numerical equivalent as Nachash, the original serpent Mashiach, these are the two complete opposites come out of the same source. The original serpent, meaning all that is evil in the world, right, has the same numerical equivalent. This is called Davavahipucho, that a thing, a necessaire one thing against another in the world. And despite that, the Mashiach will not have. Yeah, I mean, the word Adam, which is all humanity, is Aleph Daled Mem. Kabbalistically, that spells Adam, David, Mashiach. Adam, David, who is the messianic persona, Mashiach in that realized personality in the world right that's who the Mashiach is but Moshe Rabbeinu, M- Moses' prophecy, prophecy was higher <coughs> he sees through a lens that's completely unclouded Abba Destler used to say very beautiful insight we all see through clouded lenses what does it mean to see through a less clouded lens what are you working on you're working on clarifying your perception you're working on seeing out through your eyes into a world that has no you want no color to your glasses you want to see out to a world where your lens has no tint your lens has no dross no imperfection because when you look through a lens he, in his incredibly memorable way of putting it or Desley used to say when you look through a clouded lens the effect of looking through a clouded lens is that you see a bit of a reflection that's, what, that's the problem with a clouded lens the problem with a clouded lens isn't that you don't see as much light the problem with a clouded lens is that being clouded it, re, it returns a reflection and of course being clouded you don't know that it's a reflection so you think you're seeing objective reality but you're really seeing what you want to see because what you're seeing is you Right? That's what a clouded lens means. When you see through a pure lens, you see what there is. But you can only do that when you are completely unclouded, when you are completely purified. So there's none of your own personalities, none of your own dross, there's none of you there. Then what you see is the way it is. But when you are part of what's seen, namely, you see it the way your vested interest dictates, right? Some of the sluptures, some of the clothing... Yeah, is there. Some of the vessel, the lens is a little, little cloudy. Then what you see is an image of yourself. And of course, if you've got a very cloudy lens, then all you see is you. And you think that that's the whole world. You see, you think that's the whole world. Anything else is just accidentally there for your service. Which is ultimately what idolatry is. So the exact opposite of that was Moshe, who saw through a completely clear lens, as if there was no lens. The only thing he did not see was the divine level itself. And even, and even of that there's a discussion in the Kabbalistic sources. He saw the 49th of 50 levels that are possible. The 50th level, the 50th level is that which is beyond all levels, namely seeing Hashem Himself. Seeing Hashem Himself this requires a lot of discussion, but seeing God Himself, seeing Hashem Himself means seeing the source of oneness. And when you see the source of oneness, all is one. And when all is one, you aren't there anymore, because all is the oneness that is Him. And therefore it's impossible for a human being to see Him it's not possible for a human to see me and live so the, the, the unschooled ear thinks there's a limit to what you can see and if you see more than that you, need, you have to die but the, the, subtle, the, the subtle ear hears that the reason that, you can't, the reason that you can't see Hashem and live is because living means you know what the definition of being alive is in Torah combination of body and soul alive doesn't mean being here as opposed to not being Because you're never not here. The neshama always is. The soul always exists. Death only means that it gets separated from the body. But while the soul is in a body, that means it inhabits a finite realm. And it has a particular differentiated finite existence. So while that is true, you can't see Hashem. Because seeing Him means seeing that there isn't anything else but but Him. And if you would perceive that at that moment, you would not be. Because there would only be that... Do I make myself doubtful? It's clear? And therefore, even he couldn't see that. Because to see that would mean really, he would have left the level where he is an individual, right? In any, in any way. But, and despite that, he saw some of that. He saw the knot of the tulin at the back of Hashem's head. I mean, this needs a lot of discussion what exactly that means. But he couldn't see the face. But, that was his level of proxy. Now, let's try and descend into this a little bit more deeply this evening and see, and see an incredible output, uh, corollary of this, of this idea. He says, he says that Moshe prophecy was higher, I'm not going to read you the words, I'm going to give you a paraphrase, was higher than the other prophets. Because all of them, all the other prophets, their Prophecy was established by what he calls an oisomofes, ot omofet, which means a sign or a wonder. That means one of the laws the Rambam brings in the laws of prophecy is that for a prophet to establish himself, one of the methodologies of establishing himself is to produce a sign or a wonder, something that's physically impossible. One other method is to predict the future in a certain testable certain testable way, and if his prediction of the future comes true, it's one of, the criteria that, one of the criteria that can be used to establish his genuine level of prophecy. But another one is that he could perform certain miracles, discussion of exactly how, but if he performs something miraculous, then that would be a, one of the features by which he could be tested and established to be a prophet. However, anyone who believes a prophet because he does a miracle, that is a false, uh, um, it's a problematic belief. It's a it's called yesh dophi. Dofi means it is a, um, it's a problematic or not perfect belief. To believe because you were convinced, do you understand? To believe because you were convinced by seeing something marvelous or miraculous is, is problematic. First of all, first of all, there's the simple problem that it may not be reliable. Right? I, mean, I personally have witnessed with my own eyes which doctors in South Africa do things that are physically impossible. I know you're not interested in that kind of subject, so I won't tell you the details. But I mean, I, I've, I've seen that. And, uh, you know, th- those things... Uh, there's, there's no... And they were not, I mean, they may have been, you know, wonderful people, and I'm sure they were, but they weren't related to Moshe at all, and uh, therefore there's no... So to see, to establish prophecy, you are... Also, you need to know what kind of things you can see, and what, what elements of, of nature can be controverted these days, as opposed to during his days. It's a long discussion, but the, the principle remains that to see a prophet to witness and to testify and to validate a prophet's prophecy by virtue of a sign or a wonder is problematic. The Rambam writes that very clearly. In fact, in fact, the only reason he says that we do it is because the Torah commands to believe a prophet who shows such a sign. Not because it's logical. Let's get this absolutely clear. If a miracle occurred now, okay, it doesn't prove much. It doesn't prove much. The, the reason that we believe a prophet is a prophet when he performs something miraculous... Right? I mean, the Egyptian sorcerers were able to do virtually the same things. The Egyptian sorcerers, they could turn their sticks into snakes. They, could, they couldn't produce lice. That they couldn't do. Lice. Kinim. Kinim. In case you'd like to know how to produce kinim, I'm sure you all would like to know how to do that. They couldn't produce lice. And the Kabbalistic reason is that lice are too small. Any, any of you accomplished Kabbalists will know. Oh, now you'll forgive me for boring you by... Repeating that which you know. Any of you established Kabbalists will know that for a, the Kachota the, Tum'ah, the forces of impurity to take effect, you need, you need size. You either need size in space or in time. And the reason is because the forces of impurity, they do not approach infinity. They, they always need the tangible. And therefore something that is smaller than, than the proportion to which... Impurity can be attached, right? If a part of a dead body, for example, how much of a dead body, how much of some impure material do you need to convey impurity? You need a certain amount. Less than a certain amount is pure. Impurity cannot attach to that which approaches a, a, sing- a singular point. Uh, is this? And therefore, they couldn't produce kinim. They are too small. Only the forces of purity could t- turn, the, turn the dust into yeah, fascinating There's also a lot of discussion but otherwise in general they were able to do all sorts of things they produced uh, snakes from their sticks the kids the the, metastas, the little children that, that when, when Moshe Rabbein and Moses and Aaron threw their stick down became a serpent Pharaoh started cackling like a chicken Paroi and he called in his wife and Mrs. Paroi threw her stick down became a serpent and then he called in the children Mias the little children came traipsing in from the school they all threw their sticks on the ground they all became snakes all the little ch- Egyptian children he started laughing at Moshe he said to him you bring that here we're the experts. You're trying to impress us with that. You're trying to impress us with that. You came to the wrong place. In England, you say it's taking coals to Newcastle. That's what you say. The Medrash doesn't say coals to Newcastle. I'm sorry to to tell you, but what the Madras does say is that Pharaoh said to Moshe, he said, "When you have produce of superior quality, you don't take it to a market where they sell that produce, right? You don't take it to an overstock market. You go to some place where they don't have that. That's where you sell it." And Moshe turned around and said, "No. When you have superior quality produce, you take it to a market where they know that stuff." you take it exactly to a place where they deal in that, uh, the best quality of that stuff. And there they'll know the difference, right? But the little children could produce their own... That doesn't prove prophecy. It proves that there's attachment to the forces of darkness. It doesn't prove... So therefore, why should we believe a prophet he performs a miracle? By the way, this only applies during the generation of prophecy, not anymore. Today, manipulations of nature do not represent prophecy. And we'll have to discuss that as well. We've got a lot of work to do some other time. But the point is that, that in the generation of prophecy, a miracle does... Corroborate prophecy. But why? Since there are so many other options. Says the Mashiach only because the Torah commanded us that if a prophet does certain things, including these, you believe him. But only because we commanded, not because it's necessarily logical. Just like you commanded to believe witnesses, witnesses could be lying too. Witnesses could be lying. The Torah commands you to believe witnesses under certain circumstances, it leads you to believe a sign from a prophet. And there are certainly, he quotes here an example of, of a particular prophet who became a Navi Sheker means a false prophet a false prophet not not a prophet falsely a false prophet a prophet who was do you understand he was a prophet and he went off the, he went bad he became he, he was called and the, 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 the rule of such a prophet is to be killed he has to be killed but not because he, a false prophet doesn't mean he faked prophecy that's not a big deal to pretend you're a prophet doesn't mean you're a false prophet it just means you're false a false prophet means a prophet who is false of blank faces <laughs> I may not be talented as an explainer, but I, I am trying. Um, therefore, and there was at least one prophet, he quotes here, who was a false prophet, right? He went off the rails. And therefore, there's no, there's no guarantee, but the Torah commands you to do this. This was not the case with Moses, with Moshe Rabbeinu, Because all the Jewish people heard that Hashem spoke to him face to face and mouth to mouth. They all reached the level of prophecy. In other words, he says that the way it worked was when we stood at Sinai, what happened was the Jewish people were all elevated. Each Jew was elevated, the whole nation was elevated to a level of prophecy, and we heard Hashem speak to Moshe and say to him that you are now to command the Jewish people with these and these laws, and and also in you they will believe forever. We heard God say to Moses, all millions of the Jewish people, three or four million people standing there, heard Hashem say, with prophetic insight, they didn't hear a voice, they heard, that means they heard the thing itself. Prophecy is not a voice saying something, prophecy is witnessing, that means experiencing the words themselves, not hearing words talk about something. The difference between normal speech and prophecy, is that normal speech talks about something. Prophecy doesn't talk about the thing, it says the thing. It doesn't say the words of the thing, it says the thing. Yeah? The Hebrew word davar means a thing and a word. Normally you hear a word that talks about a thing. In prophecy you don't hear a word, you hear the thing itself. You hear the thing itself, you experience it. It's like creating the thing is, yeah, is the same as, as saying the word if it's at a prophetic level. The whole Jewish people, that's incidentally, fundamentally dif- different between us and other religions. There's no other nation on earth. There's no other religious system, not in the east or the west ever, there never has been and there isn't any now, that claims divine revelation to more than one person at a time. Do you know that? When you ask all the religions, ask Christians, where their source of divine revelation is, that gave them the New Testament. Right? Paul, so-called Saul of Tarsus, he was a Jew, Paul, he had his famous vision on the Damascus Road, in which God spoke to him and told him that the founder of Christianity was, etc., etc. When he, he, when Paul came to the Jews and told him about this prophecy, the Jewish people said, "And who was there with you? Who witnessed this divine revelation?" He said, "No, I heard it myself." The Jews said, "We got, we, we another time for that." When we heard him, we heard him all together. The Muslims, the Muslims follow the prophecy manifested in one man. Muhammad, he sat in his tent, he came out of his tent, he said, here's the Koran, it was dictated to me. When he came to the Jews, by force, history books say, that he killed more than a million Jews, to try to convert them. The Jewish people said, who was in that tent with you, who heard this divine revelation? He said, no, this is a private revelation. The Jews said, look, we've got better than that. Well, what's fascinating is that, in the history of mankind, nobody's ever claimed a prophecy, no one's ever claimed a divine revelation, to more than one person. That's a stupendous fact. That means, let, let's put it this way, let We know that out there in the claims of divine revelation, certainly somebody's lying. We're not going to get political and say who... But somebody's lying because they all call each other liars. You have to understand this. The Muslims and the Christians call them infidels and they call them dogs. Know that. They've had crusades of murdering each other because of their false beliefs, each one says. But they both agree that we're true. You have to understand this. You have a three-way triangle in the West Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. All three say Judaism is true. You know that. They all agree to the divine river. The Quran's based on the Old Testament and the New Testament is based on the Old. They all agree to that. But they say that they each one is lying. So somebody out there is lying and it's by common agreement, not us. Right? Okay, now if you're lying, if you're lying already, pay a witness. You know, if you're lying already, so one witness? But it's, it's remarkable in the history of the world that nobody has ever had the effrontery. The Torah actually says no one has had the audacity to claim divine revelation even to one witness who was there together with... I'm talking about divine revelation, not so-called miraculous events. That, as we said, is not a... not incontrovertible. And the Jewish people say, and we, we claim that we heard him speak to Moshe, to Moshe it. we heard it all ourselves at the level of prophecy. And the purpose of that was to establish him as valid. That's why we did it. And after that we came down from the level of prophecy and he remained on his supernal level of prophecy. But the reason we were lifted at that moment was to establish at that level. It's a very serious mistake to think that the reason that we witnessed what we witnessed at Sinai was to prove God's existence. People make a fundamental mistake. They think that the reason we stood at Sinai and saw God appear was because there needed to be once and for all in history a proof of his existence you can see patently that that's not true why? because the Egyptians never stood at Sinai, correct? the Egyptians did not stand at Sinai, that was our privilege the Egyptians witnessed miracles and divine revelations in Egypt and they were drowned in the sea and the Torah says that the reason I'm revealing myself in Egypt is so that the Egyptians shall know that I exist and I am God and I control the world so if the Egyptians were supposed to get that message without standing at Sinai, obviously that's adequate message did, did I prove the point? You're very, very hesitant tonight. <laughs> if Hashem says, I am appearing, I'm going to do wonders in Egypt, ten incredible, miraculous plagues in Egypt, culminating with my own presence there, to destroy the firstborn and redeem the Jewish people, right? Why am I doing this? That they should know, that the Egyptians should know, right? There's, nobody, there's no one like me, I am Hashem. So obviously, his proofs in Egypt were adequate to hold the Egyptians accountable to know that he exists. So obviously, you don't need Sinai to know that God exists. The truth is, long before Egypt, we knew he existed too. The question is, what did Sinai establish? What was Sinai there for? And therefore, as my, as my Rebbe said in his uh, uh, stupendous way, he said, Zelo in kwa unbelievable statement. It's not a question of the power of the proof. Ze in Stupendous statement. He said, it's not a question of the power of the proof. It's a question of the quality of the knowledge that's known. It's not to prove that the knowledge is. It's a question of the quality of the knowledge that Egyptians were not privy to. To know what Sinai was, to reach that voltage and that intensity, that's a Jewish people's experience. It was not to prove that God exists. And therefore, we were lifted to the level of prophecy where we saw his prophecy validated and we heard it as prophets. And then we came down. And one of the things, and therefore... And therefore, that was a seminal event in history. But during that experience, we heard Hashem say to him, always believe in you. The Jewish people always believe in you, in Moshe Rabbeinu. So says the Meshachot, on a very, very interesting observation, an amazing observation. And if you think about it, you, you, you have to say this. Listen to this incredible statement. It says here, and you, they will... Imkein, if that's true, how could God command that we would always believe in Moses? Because your person has free will. Hashem's full knowledge does not obviate free will. Maybe Moshe Rabbeinu would make a mistake later. Again, listen carefully to this. This is stupid. point this. Picture the scene. We're standing at Sinai, right? You should always picture yourself at Sinai. That's where you should always be. You're standing at Sinai. You hear Hashem speaking, and He says to Moshe. He talks to him, and He says to you, the Jewish people. He says, the Jewish people in your presence. You hear Him saying. You hear Hashem saying. You know what that experience was. The Jewish people died when they heard Hashem speak. To to to, to meet God face to face, your neshama doesn't stick around with you. It flies out to the source. the Gemara says when Hashem appeared at Sinai all the Jews died then Hashem flew out to him and the bodies were blasted back 12 miles 12 mil outside the camp of Kedusha and then during the second statement they were resurrected resuscitated revivified. they came back towards Sinai Hashem spoke again they exploded they literally exploded when Hashem began the third of the Ten Commandments the Jewish people said wait they said wait that's enough it's very hard to do this to explode in death to explode that when you right that's called a kiss. It says, You should kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There was a mouth-to-mouth contact there. And that soul, when it makes mouth-to-mouth contact with Hashem, it's sucked out. flies back to its source. So the third was enough. After the second, they said to Hashem, they said, It's enough. You hear the rest and tell us. We've heard enough. We know. And it was praiseworthy that they did that. Right? Praiseworthy that they did. But for those two, they heard it expressed. And during that time, they heard Hashem say to Moshe, They'll always believe in you now there's a problem here Moshe ben is a human being he has free will how can God assure us that we will always believe in him he will always remain trustworthy and believable he's a human being he's got free will free will is yeah, that means maybe the next day Moshe Abedin would do something uh, improper he would add something to the Torah he would make a mistake he's a human being he has free will as we understand it even at the very, very highest level of free will he can still make a mistake it will no doubt be an incredibly refined mistake but it will be a mistake can you hear the problem? Again, again. Divine foreknowledge does not negate free will. Okay, that's axiomatic in Judaism. In fact, axiomatic in religion, but certainly in Judaism. Divine foreknowledge, what we call yiddiah, does not negate bechira, free will. Again, again. Slowly. God knows in advance what will be, right? Except yeah? at this, you should not. <laughs> Hashem knows in advance what will be, right? Yes. <laughs> let's try that again Hashem knows in advance what will be because He knows everything is beyond time and you have free will, right? you better believe it if you don't have free will there's no discussion You no know, responsibilities, no anything so you see that you have free will and He knows before what you're going to do you see His free will does not negate your, His foreknowledge does not negate it's not a predestination it's just a foreknowledge this is an incredible subject it's a, 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 a massive subject that is the source of all paradox. But nevertheless, He knows in advance it does not alter your free will. So if God is going to appear in Sinai and say, Moses is trustworthy and will always remain so, what happened to his free will? If God announces in the presence of all witnesses that Moses will always remain trustworthy, how can he then make a mistake? Says the Meshachachimah, he lost his free will. He was propelled, he was propelled into a level beyond free will. He became... There are the odd English words for it. Semi-divine, he became... He, began, he, he, he moved into a world where things are no longer free. There's no way otherwise that Hashem could have assured us that He would always be trustworthy and He would never add or subtract anything from the Torah. The only way Hashem could say that is in that same announcement that's saying that He will always remain true is the statement that He has no free will anymore. that's the fundamental difference at his level he is Torah he is Hashem speaking there's no question here of a human being making decisions he then goes on to point out I mean you should look it up yourself he goes on to point out that later Moses did make a mistake struck the rock instead of speaking to it so his language is I mean his language is very you have to study of course every word but if you look at his words he says I'll read you his words and I'm sure you'll pick it up he says, "Val Kochen, you have to say shalal Hashem took away his free will. Kamal achim. He remained bound and forced, as it were, with no free will, like angels. Now, angels do have free will, but they have the free will of angels, it was a different category. Moshe to reached the level of angelic free will. An angel has free will only." that's what I'd like to discuss a little bit this evening what is the level of free will of uh, strictly speaking Adam also had a it was relevant this category was relevant to him we we'll would have to discuss Adam's free will as well because Adam didn't have any evil speaking within him he wasn't subject Moshe Bono left the world of having any evil Adam did not have evil within him he had no vested interests or sensual desires or, or cravings he was completely pure and angels have no cravings or vested interests they don't, they don't lust or, or crave they don't have any and therefore, they also pure. And therefore, those categories of beings, and actually he brings out the fact that Joshua also, to a certain extent, Joshua, sure, because he is Torah in a certain, to a certain extent, Joshua also lost his free will. <coughs> in fact, that's why both Moshe Rabbeinu and Joshua, <coughs> both of whom reached a level beyond free will, both were able to stop the sun. The sun is a being that has no free will. And therefore, it's fitting that these two humans who reached, they both stopped the sun when necessary, right? Shemesh begivon dom. Let the sun stop in Yarech Emek Ayalon, right? And the moon in the valley of Ayalon. That's, Moshe Ben was able to do it, and Yeshua were able to do it. They both were human beings who reached above the level of human free will. They were able to interact with those cosmic forces that also have no free will, right? That is a very deep idea. But he lost his free will. How did he sin later when he struck the rock? He made the same mistake that an angel could make. What's the mistake of an angel? Let's understand this. An angel, Malachim, have free will. The reason they have free will is that they are beings. They are beings. They are are created beings. They are spiritual beings. They are emanations. They are not in the world of the divine. They are below that. They are in one of three levels. Angels inhabit one of three layers of creation that are below the divine level. Right? There is a certain world which we call Hashem's presence, as it were, or His essence and then below that are three worlds I'm going to skip through this very fast because I know none of you have any Kabbalistic interest but very briefly there are <laughs> a long night yeah there are three levels below the divine which are created levels they are not the oneness of the divine they are external only the lowest is physical in fact only the lowest of the lowest is tangible and finite and physical but below the divine are three levels they may be transcendent with respect to us they may be multiplex in their flexibility Right? things in those worlds could take many forms but nevertheless they certainly created they are not part of the creator and angels that inhabit those worlds they are created beings the word malach in Hebrew really means agency right like malachah you know that there is a connection between the two Malacha means an act that I do a creative act that I do an angel is really a, a, a shliach He's is really he's sent as an, as an agent that goes to do at a distance he has free will technically speaking to disobey why does he not disobey so understand carefully First of all, he does not disobey his command. An angel does not make a mistake and disobey because he's got no vested interest. Why should he? Why, why should he? The reason you make mistakes, not you, of course, I'm sure none of you ever do, but anyone who does make a mistake makes a mistake because you have a vested interest. You have a clouded, like we said before, you have, you have a rationale, rationalization, you have, you have your own vested interests. But if you don't have any vested interests, all you are built for is to do the will of Hashem. When He commands you, why on earth wouldn't you? And secondly, connected to this, An angel sees clearly. We don't see clearly. Again, it's another way of saying the same thing. We live in darkness. The reason we sin, the reason we make mistakes, is because you don't see clearly the consequences. An angel sees the consequences. He's got open eyes. He's not in the world of darkness. He's not in the world. He's not clothed in the material. (coughs) So he's not. Is this clear? An angel sees exactly reality. And when you see reality, you don't sin. You only sin when you don't see reality. You know why you hurt someone's feelings? because at the moment you said that hurtful comment you didn't actually see them you, would, you saw you or you thought you'd get away with it you, you, you. but if you saw it that means as you said the hurtful word you felt the pain if it was their present you would never do that again the only reason you make mistakes is you don't see clearly you, you imagine it's not like that but an angel who sees things the way they are would never let me try I don't see any enlightened faces if you the example would be if you put yourself in a situation where you yourself see the consequences, let's say you stand in front of a blazing inferno, and I ask you, do you have free will to step into the fire? The answer is, technically you certainly do. There's no one stopping you. Step right ahead. But you see the consequences so clearly, that in practice you don't have free will. Is this clear? If you stand on the top of a tall building, you know, are you free to jump off? Technically speaking, Yes. But under normal circumstances, with a normal state of mind, you see the consequences so brutally clearly that in practice, that's not. Do you understand? Angels see the consequences that clearly that to disobey Hashem's command is instantly walking into an inferno of non-existence. Why would anybody of spiritual uh, spiritual being want to do that? It's inconceivable, and therefore they cannot make mistakes. That's why angels don't make mistakes. However, they sometimes do make mistakes first of all there's one category I'm certainly not going to discuss this evening where they make a mistake not a sin like the angel of death says he he was once sent to take Miriam the hairdresser and he took Miriam the uh, another Miriam he got it wrong the baker I don't know he got the names wrong I've got to mix it up he was sent to kill to take the soul angel of death he got his thing wrong he got the names wrong got the wrong address and he took the wrong so that's a whole Okay, that needs discussion right that also needs discussion. But I'm not talking about a mistake, I'm talking about a sin. Right? Classic example, what's the classic example of an angel sinning? There's no one here tonight, there's no one here. In Sodom, right, when Sodom was to be destroyed, do you remember that? When Sodom was to be destroyed, so the angels came and they said to Lot, Get out, because we are destroying the city. Get out, we've come to save you, right? There were two angels. One came to save him, the one came to destroy the city. Right? so when they were overturned the city of Sodom Sodom and Stoam and Amora, right fire, brimstone whatever it is salt, whatever, cataclysmic annihilation of that culture that society they said to him get out because we've come to and they were punished the angel the angel said for one moment he let slip from his lips I am going to destroy the city as if he has a part to play, as if he is something, and not just a completely transparent messenger. And therefore, in the, in the subsequent verses, he was forced to eat his words, this angel. He was forced to say, because we cannot do anything until Hashem, right? we, our hands are tied until Hashem, you know, this angel was forced, he made the error of making it appear, just in a faint suggestion of a nuance, of a, that, that, that he, as it were, had a part to play, other than being a totally loyal, transparent and therefore he was forced to correct that by saying that I cannot do anything until Hashem, Hashem does it. In fact, in the Kabbalistic writings it says that he suffered for 138 years, that angel. Kuf 138 years for... What had it happened? Because he... That's another discussion. But the point is that he... Now how does an angel do that? What does it, what does it mean, that mistake? Let's just understand. What, what does it mean? He made a slip. The angel made a mistake. He made a slip. He said, after all, What he really meant was, I've come to destroy the city as my task. That's what he meant. Only the words lent themselves to, to possibly to the unschooled ear to suggest a suggestion that perhaps he had some volition here, right? And for that he had to eat his words very, very painfully. What does this mean? All right, it's a long discussion, but briefly the essence of the spiritual world is to disappear. The essence of spirituality is to not be there. The essence of spiritual development is to be completely transparent, a lens that's transparent, nothing of your own. Yes? Yeah? The, the origin of all spiritual problems, the origin of all sin, is ego. That means there's somebody here. If there's no one home, if there's no one at home, only Hashem's will, then there's no desire to do anything wrong. There's no lusts or cravings, and there's no pride. All, all comes down to, yeah, anger, for example. Where does anger come from? Let's trace it. Take an example, anger. Anger is the worst characteristic, right? Blind anger—that's one thing that has no correction. You know that. All other characteristics, sensuality has a correct kosher application. Um, uh, jealousy has a correct kosher application. W- wonderful application, etc., etc. Anger has no kosher application. It's the worst. Right? There's no there's no valid application of complete historical blind anger. That has no complete out of control. That has no valid application. Right? That's being inhuman at that moment. Where does it come from? Why do you get ang- angry? What's the source of the quality of anger? Think for a moment, you'll realize. Pride. You only get angry because when someone steps on your toes, yeah, somebody stepped on, you stepped on my toes, me, my toes, him, on mine. But if you aren't anybody, then there wasn't anybody's toes that got stepped on. If you're completely transparent, if you're not, you wouldn't get angry. You, 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 all sin, you can be traced back. All character flaws, everything can be traced back to simply being, being someone. As opposed to being a completely transparent lens, right? For the light that should shine. Rav Sincha Vassaman used to say a most beautiful thing. He used to say that the world is full of light, except where we cast the shadows. <laughs> the trouble with you is you've been such a try, try, you keep trying to be such a big deal, making spirituality that you keep getting in the way. Your job is just to get out of the way. You know, it's written in all our sources that what's obstructing the Mashiach in many ways is that some of us are trying to bring him. Our job to bring Mashiach is to stop interfering. That's our job, is to get out of the way. That's our job. That's our job, just to get out. Of the way. You know, it's, it's really pathetic. I mean, it's like... It reminds me, the Mashkichim used to say that you know, when Hashem arrives in our generation, who are we in our generation? What do we know? How do we, how do we deal? In the previous generation, they were great enough to make some action, to do something to bring Hashem. They could act without with ego. But we, we are... The analogy for us in our generation, unfortunately, is like when the king... The, the old-time the old analogy they gave was when the king took a state trip through his kingdom went out of the city, the capital city through the smaller towns and eventually out into the fields and tiny villages. So, the officers of the king, they wanted to prepare the populace for the arrival of the king with his incredible, ornate gold carriage and all his royalty, that the people should give the proper homage to the king. So, in the capital city, they told the people, when the king comes past in his carriage, you know, you blow the bugles and you do all the, whatever they do in the, the, the king. When they got to small towns, they said to the people, when the king comes past, there's a carriage that looks like this and like this. So then, You know, you pay homage, you bow down, they told them what to do. Then they got to the smaller villages, and they said, where they said, look, you've never seen the king before, but there's a carriage that looks a certain way. When he comes past, you show a certain respect, you do certain things, they told the people what to do. Then they got to the real outlying villages on the borders, where the people are completely, utterly primitive, they never even heard of the capital city, let alone the king. So they went there and they said, look, on a such and such a date, through this street, this, little, this muddy street of this little village, is going to come a carriage that's going to look like this. It's going to have gold and white horses and so forth and so on. Never mind what it means. But when it comes there, just don't spit in the street while it's going past. That's all. That's all. Just don't spit in the street and just don't throw your garbage out. That's all. Just keep the pigs out of the road. Don't throw your garbage out in the street and don't spit. That's all we want from you. That that's what they say about us. In our generation, Hashem is trying to. He's taking a trip. and he's. This is the out, these are the outlying villages I can assure you. This is the border of the kingdom. This is the end of history. And all we're supposed to be doing here is to be a big deal and make the Mashiach come because of our spirituality. If you think that, you've got a big problem. Our job is just don't spit in the street, that's all. Just keep the pigs out of the way and don't swill the garbage out. Just at least allow him. That's our job, right? But the depth of it, of course, is killing of ego. The depth of it is to genuinely be nobody. It's genuinely to know that you aren't anybody. Of course, this doesn't mean that you paralyze your activity, of course. You, You act like a hero. Use all your powers. You act totally like a hero. You do everything you can. You, you reach for super, supernatural achievements. That's what you do. But knowing that it's not you, that's the difference. The vested interest, right, is what has, to be, what has to be annulled over here. And therefore, the origin of sin is the, is the, is the arrogating to the self of a, <clears throat> of a selfhood. Right? That's where it begins. And therefore, an angel comes... Do you understand the problem? When an angel comes along and says, I'm going to destroy the city, that language that language is a subtle inference of his own independent existence and the whole purpose of an angel is to be a transparent emanation just an emanation of Hashem's presence so as soon as he uses a language that gives himself any selfhood at all okay, that is the original sin that's the original problem it's a slip it's a mistake it's a a mistake at a divine level it's the mistake of a creature who essentially doesn't have free will but nevertheless nevertheless no he should have said Hashem is destroying the city leave fast because Hashem is destroying the city negating his own part as it were and therefore, Moshe Hashanah made a mistake when he struck the rock. Instead of speaking to it, so there was, at his incredible level, we're talking about the cosmic, we're talking about the level of an angel, but nevertheless, that's not a contradiction to his, to his free will. And therefore, the concept here is that he, and later sure, Joshua, who represents a part of Torah, he wrote the last eight verses of the Torah, and possibly one, one other section as well. He was, he had a share in Torah... He was the purpose of, that's why it says that if it weren't, if, if history had not turned out the way it had, if we hadn't sinned the way we did, the only part of the Torah we would have had would have been Chumash and the Sefer of Joshua. The only essential part of Torah we would have had would have been the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. The rest we would not have needed. Because all the rest of the books of the prophets are essentially nothing other than castigation and berating the Jewish people for their sins, right? You failed, you, you, you backsliders, you, 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 you sank you, it's, it's exhortation, right? And, and rebuke of the Jewish people and therefore those books would not have been necessary if we hadn't fallen. The only books we would have had would have been Chumash and Sefer Yoshua. in fact it does also say that the final stage post-Messianic age you will have only the, the Chumash and the Chumash Yeshua and will have uh, the book of Magillus Esther. Purim. Purim will still remain Esther. We need to talk about that when Purim comes around. But the books of the prophets, which are the criticism of the Jewish people and are trying to uplift them, would not have been necessary. So Moses and Joshua, Moshe, Abedin and Joshua, they shared a certain level of having entered that rarefied zone, as it were, of being beyond, beyond free will. And therefore... The point that we, that we see here is that there is a possibility of a human being, at least theoretical possibility, leaving free will behind. The version, what we need to take home, the message here for us, for ourselves of course, is first of all understanding the Torah of this issue, where Moshe was, who he was, what our experience was when we witnessed that, and were put in touch with that. And secondly, at our very small level, of course we are supposed to achieve a miniature version of the same thing. That means, for us to become so transparent that our persona, as it were, is lost entirely, and we have no free will, that's impossible. But what we are supposed to do is clarify to the extent that as far as possible we, leave, we lose our free will. The object of having free will is to lose it. The ultimate choice of free will is to give it away. Right? Let's try to explain that briefly and we'll, we'll close with that. You see, the purpose of free will is to choose not to have any free will right is at, at, at the relevant levels let's try to explain the basis for this ok is the famous issue of the point of free will and maybe next week or another occasion we discuss it more fully but the basic premise is that there's what's called nekudat habachira nekudas <laughs> that means that you have free will only at a particular point of your activities this is the most classic Perhaps one of the most classic ideas that Rob Desler put across, crystallized this for us. That free will operates only at the point of battle. Below your point of free will, you are not free. And the reason is because those things are too base and crude and coarse for you to do wrong. You have more elevated, more refined than those things. You wouldn't do them wrong. And things beyond your point of free will are too refined for you. You wouldn't do them right. You may not even be aware that those are issues. Is this point clear? You are battling only the things that are currently within the ambit of your spiritual battle. Yeah? The things... No one sitting in this room is struggling with being violent and hurting people physically. Uh, You wouldn't be sitting here on a... I can assure you. You wouldn't be sitting here on a Wednesday night listening to a Torah lecture if you were struggling with mugging people. You know, if your problem is how viciously you're going to mug the next little old lady who walks past because you want her mobile phone, then I'm sure that's what you would be out there doing. You wouldn't be... uh, listening to a Torah lecture unless of course you just did it and you got a mobile phone but I mean otherwise that's not what you that's not where you would be and therefore that's not your so when you when you fail to mug someone and hit them over the head with a brick and take their money okay that is not a free will you have not you have not been victorious in a free will action you didn't choose because it wasn't an issue is is this but somebody who is unfortunately holding by mugging people in the street that is what that person's activity is. That is where he's holding. Now, when I get up to the next world, personally, I, me, and Hashem says, Tats, what did you achieve on earth? If I have the chutzpah to say to him, Hashem, I never hit any little old ladies over the head with a brick, he's not going to say to me, Shukach, very good, very impressive. You know? He's <laughs> not going to say that to me. And that is because I do not have that. I have my own problems, I can assure you, but that's not one of them. Right, that's not one of them. Whereas there are people, unfortunately, who have that problem. But there are things beyond me that I'm not capable of doing right yet, because they're too difficult, they're too refined, they're beyond my level of professional expertise. And therefore, He won't hold that against me, do you understand? Because I wasn't yet there. When my, my ordeals, whatever they are, right? what's my, my test in life, is when I'm not feeling well to try and say the best I can for you explain as well as I can and put it across in a way that will be as meaningful as possible for you, right? The fellow out there on the street is mugging people with a brick. He's not worrying about how he can teach Torah as sensitively as he can. When he gets up to shemaim, he probably won't be held accountable. For you understand? But That's not his problem. And I look up to people who've got ordeals that I can't even begin to imagine. So, they are beyond me. You're only, you're only battling and grappling and moving meaningfully at the level where you are. Is, is this clear? If you play tennis... If you play tennis, you only meaningfully play at a person who's more or less your strength. Right? If you yes, if you play a three-year-old who's never held a racket, doesn't know idea about tennis, and you you masterfully you know control the game, right? <laughs> you wouldn't say afterwards, "I won." <laughs> no, you wouldn't say that. And conversely, conversely, if you played the world champion, right, and during the whole game you never saw the ball ever once, you wouldn't come home and say, "I lost." You didn't lose. You didn't play, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not. That's not where you are locked in battle with your lower self. You are locked in battle with your lower self only at the point which is meaningfully where you are. What's below you is conquered territory. What's beyond you is unconquered territory. It's stronger than you. That's where the enemy holds sway. You only. Ba- you're only holding at the point. What your Odessa used to say, beautiful, uh, very memorable, Marshall. The point of free will is like the front line in a war where the two nations are locked in battle. In the captured territory, in the home territory, there's no battle. Right? The, the war, of course, is between the entire nations, but the firing line, the pain, and the conflict is only at the front line. Beyond that is already conquered territory is no... And beyond, on the other side, is unconquered territory. There's no battle there. The battle is only... The front moves forward or back. And as the front moves more and more territories conquered, you become more and more refined. More of your urges and lower childish self becomes under control. And then you must battle higher battles and more difficult battles. You must play the club champion. Then you've got to play the national champions. Finally you'll play the world champion. But only because you overcome the la- lower ones and then you... That's how you Mister. rise. Mr. Schoen, maybe next week we'll speak more thoroughly about free will and how, and how it works. But one of the levels of free will that is possible is that of Moses and Moshe Abedin who climbs out of the category entirely. And... The parallel for us is to climb out of your own categories. You first climb out of the category of mugging people in the, in the street. Then you climb out of the category of saying nasty, hurtful things because you don't have the self-control. Then you claim... And you climb gradually in your own sense of elevation to the idea being that when you surpass a level it should be impossible for you to make that mistake. You should climb out of it to the extent where you couldn't do that again. It would be so offensive and so crude and so coarse and so disgusting that that which last year you were holding by and doing this year you couldn't do. Not because you don't have free will to do it anymore. You could not do it. They couldn't force you to do that. You'd be sick of the thought of doing such a thing whereas last year you craved that thing. Right? You've climbed out of free will. You've given it up the object of free will is to give it up, is to achieve a higher level and a higher level and to conquer more territory that no longer any free will. mean to put it absolutely bluntly, the Gemara says that if a man will finish with this, a man comes to a fork in the road. The one limb of the fork takes him home without any problem. The other limb takes him past a river where women are washing or they're doing some washing they're immodestly exposed. So this man says to himself, look, I'm not supposed to look at women who are immodestly exposed, that's what a Jewish man should, should know. And therefore, yeah, if I look at them and say, bring me down spiritually, it's not, it's not allowed, not allowed to do it. So he says to himself like this, what am I in the world for? I'm in the world to grapple with free will, to use my free will. So surely the right thing for me is to take the road where the women are and not look at them. That's what I'm here for, right? I have to conquer my... So, oh. so the Gemara says, if he takes the road where the women are and does not look at them, he's called a rasha, an evil man. Because the challenge was not to take the road where the women are and not look. The challenge was to take the other road. This individual, not only did he he fail the test, he failed to identify the test. The test was not whether you look at the women. The test is which road will you take. This individual was so into proving his own capacity for overcoming himself that he missed the test entirely. The test was... Yeah, any sensible individual who faces a road where there's a cobra poised to strike and a safe road takes the safe road. What idiot takes the road where the cobra is to see if he can duck and dodge the snake? You got to be something wrong with you. If you have poison, if you have poison at home, you don't put it on the table next to the wine and say, let's see if you remember to drink the wine, not the poison. You're poison. You throw it out. You lock it up. You don't play with fire. So why does he take the road where the spiritual ordeal is right? in order to overcome it? There's only one of two possibilities. Either you'll succumb and you'll fall into what's called taiva cravings and lusts, or you'll overcome it and you'll fall into what's called gaiva pride. I did it. I managed. There's only one way out of that impossible duality. Don't engage the test at all. Don't engage the test. You have to. You have to. If the chicken out of the test, say. Ah. That's why every morning we say to Hashem, Al Tvienu Lo lidei Nisayon. Do not bring us to any ordeals. Are ah, you in the world to be tested? It's one of the three reasons you created for. La Ben says the Ramkhal, to stand strong in tests. At Sadiq says, Hashem, keep the test and keep its reward. Don't let me do any damage in your world. What does he mean? You choose to give away your free will. I could go and battle the thing, I give that away, I'll take the safe road. Ah, where's your proof that you're a man or a woman? That you're capable? Where's your yeah? Why aren't you doing for him? Why aren't you proving? Why aren't you asserting? Why aren't you? I'm not here for that. I'm here to be a transparent reflection of the way things should be. So when there's an option to engage a test or not engage the test, you don't engage the test and win because then you failed. You might overcome the test but then you failed in ego which is the assertion that you can pass the test which is a fundamental. That was Adam's sin. is choosing to engage the ordeal as opposed to sitting passively and letting Hashem do it. And therefore when an angel says I am about to destroy the city you know, despite having no free will he has transgressed that, that element so in summary what we learned this evening was that in follow up to last week's discussion Moses Moshe Benu, was on a level where in our terms he lost his free will or in other terms he achieved the free will of an angel of a malach the relevance to us apart from the Torah of the matter is knowing that the challenge for us is to reach a level of free will where in fact we have negated our own free will we've chosen to give that up we've chosen to become obliged we've chosen a level of refinement where those things aren't ordeals anymore right we're not fighting those battles anymore. Most of the battles still have to remain controlled. It isn't that they become automatically. Certain areas in particular, we can talk about it also in the future, certain areas always need to be locked in change. You can never become careless. But, essentially, they should not be areas, the conquered areas, the conquered territory should be territory where free will doesn't apply anymore. So, in summary, the Torah is taught to us by one whose lack of, loss of free will, as it were, we witnessed ourselves, we witnessed him reach that level, that's where Torah comes from. An example we follow in our activity in Torah is to reach a level we, as, as it were, we outgrow our own free will. That means we outgrow ego, we outgrow the selfhood, which is that which sets us as separate from Hashem. In losing the selfhood that defines me as a separate being, cosmic and, and almost infinite, though I am in my greatness, when I negate that selfhood, I truly melt into becoming one with Him. Okay, we'll stop.